Well, good morning. We want to continue our discussion of the book of Acts. <clears throat> we'll be concluding the book, Acts 28, 30-31. So let me just give you some introductory comments here to this lesson. The book of Acts began with Jesus giving commands and speaking to his apostles about the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us right now, um, today, because we really don't understand what he meant when he talked about the kingdom of God. And so we're going to try to go a little deeper into that, try to get more of a glimpse of that. But that was what he talked about. During the days between his resurrection and ascension, he focused on the kingdom of God. Most of us, if we were alive, you know, at that time, we would want him to talk about salvation and forgiveness of sins and how to evangelize and missions and those kinds of things. He didn't talk about that that we know of. He talked about the kingdom of God. So we've got to begin to explore that. We've got to be open that there's something much more profound here about the kingdom that we really don't get. We don't really understand. And even his apostles didn't really understand it because they thought it was a literal restoration of the kingdom to Israel. That is, Israel had lost its kingdom because of sin and even though they were restored partially, they never got a full restoration of the kingdom. And they were looking for that. They were under the bondage of the Roman Empire at the time Jesus lived. So they were looking for him to get rid of the Roman Empire and restore the kingdom of Israel. And he said, no, nope, that's not what I'm doing. He, he was talking in some way about a spiritual kingdom of God. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, we want to try to Go a little deeper into that today as we talk about this final portion of the book of Acts. So clearly the understanding of the kingdom of God as a physical kingdom was not aligned with the plan of the Father. It doesn't mean that there won't be a physical kingdom. We know that ultimately there will be. There will be a new creation and there will be a physical kingdom at that point. But between now and then, what is the kingdom of God? What does that look like and how are we to relate to it? We have to understand God's executing something big, a big story. And everybody has a role. The role of the original apostles was to serve as eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus, which is the linchpin of Christianity. Now, it's, it's important to realize that because we are very quick to apply Acts 1-8 to ourselves, to assume it's our mandate, but he didn't address it to us. He addressed it to the original apostles. And they had something that we don't have and we can never have. And that is they were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Nobody, none of us has had that. We can't say that. There were about 500 people. There were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians 15. But he specifically gives this task to be eyewitness testimonies of the resurrection to the original apostles. And not even the Apostle Paul took that on. In Acts 13, 30-32, he makes a clear distinction between himself as an apostle and the original apostles. He's building his work of testifying to the grace of God and to the good news of the grace of God and the good news of the kingdom of God based on the eyewitness accounts of the original apostles. He, he made no claim that he could give that eyewitness account as they could. So we have some very interesting subtleties here that help us in understanding 
what the kingdom of God might be. Now, the book of Acts of the Apostles, remember, is a transition book from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Interestingly, those terms don't show up in the book, but they show up in other places in Scripture. The book really assumes that you understand that. You understand the Old Covenant and New Covenant because the New Testament not only refers to it, but the Old Old Testament explicitly spells it out. The understanding that this is a, that the book of Acts is giving us a picture that Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. That's very important. Jesus didn't come in a vacuum. He didn't come with some kind of all of a sudden, here's a new plan and a strategy. He came to fulfill what was prophetically predicted of him in the Old Testament. Christianity is deeply rooted and grounded in Old Testament scripture. There's a continuity between the Old Testament into the New Testament. And Acts is the flow of thought to help us understand that continuity better and better. So let's just jump in here and take a look at some of the context of Acts 28 first. Now, I talked about this last time, but I want to just go back to his first two encounters in Rome. Paul gets to Rome. It was quite a journey. It took some months to get there and a lot of uh, challenges, including nearly, you know, nearly dying, getting shipwrecked and being delivered from that and now he finally gets to Rome and he first meets with the local leaders of the Jews. So I'm gonna just read that text. As I said, I mentioned that and talked about that more in depth last time, but I'll just read it again. After three days, that is he arrived in Rome and now after three days there, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they gathered, he said to them, brothers, Now, this is brothers in an ethnic sense. They're fellow Jews. They're not brothers in Christ, but they're brothers in the sense of being fellow Jews. Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs, and this is the customs means the prescribed lifestyle or manner of life. We have to be clear that to be a Jew was not something that was just casual. It would define a lifestyle, a manner of life. And likewise, to be a Christian describes a lifestyle, a manner of life. So he said, I haven't done anything against the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they examined me, they wished, now this word wished here is bulamai, which means desired. And this is stronger than the other word that's used for will, which is thelo. Uh, Bulamai really has to do with a plan and purpose. Thelo is more of, of choices, individual choices. So they really desired, they wished, they wanted to set Paul free, but there was no reason for the, for there's no reason for the death penalty in his case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. And that was the right of Roman citizens. If they felt like they were not getting justice, they could appeal ultimately to Caesar. Caesar served as the Supreme Court, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. In other words, there was really no basis for going to Caesar except the Jews were making it difficult. For this reason, therefore, I've asked to see you and speak with you. He's speaking to the Jewish people in Rome now since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing the chains. So when he speaks of the hope of Israel, of course, their hope, they gravitate toward a physical restoration of the kingdom. 
But he's speaking more profoundly than that. He's speaking of the hope outlined in the Old Testament, which was included a new covenant. It went beyond the old covenant to a new covenant. It includes an eternal kingship that would come through the line of David. And of course, Christ would be the eternal king. But they didn't understand all that. Uh, Certainly, you know, Paul was speaking much more profoundly than they were able to understand. Verse 21, and they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you. None of the uh, brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. And with regard to this sect, they referring to the Christians. By that time, they were called Christians. Early on, it was called the way. With regard to this sect called Christians, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So the Jews were very much opposed to it. Not, Not every Jew, because there were some that had come to Christ. But it was commonly not accepted by the Jews, particularly the Jews that continued to attend the synagogues. And when they appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. In other words, they uh, they were going to gather again, and they were going to bring more people, and they were going to listen to it. So now the next visit is recorded in the next section, which is verses uh, starting verse 23 to verse 29. So Paul has gathered with the bigger crowd of Jews. Now from morning till evening, expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God. So here he is. He's not doing what we would do. We would want to share the gospel with him. That would be our mindset. Got to give him the gospel because everything in our mindset is the gospel. I think the enemy has done a masterful job of, of confusing us. We don't really know what we're talking about. We're just using words because the words are generally accepted in in the Christian communities today. But Paul was very clear. He's testifying to the kingdom of God. Now, what did he mean by that is the challenge for us today. And furthermore, not only was he testifying, he was trying to convince or persuade using words. Now, I know there's some in the body of Christ that say that we shouldn't try to persuade or convince And there are others that say we should. Well, Paul clearly would have that sense of trying to persuade or convince, but not in the sense of many today. Many think we need to try to persuade in the sense of convincing them to make a decision for Christ as if they could. It's not that sense with Paul. He's trying to put forth the very best arguments from Scripture to explain about who Jesus was and about what the kingdom of God is all about. So he's trying to convince them about Jesus, who is the king of the kingdom, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. And as some some were convinced, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed from Paul after he made one statement. Now, please know that he is expounding all day, all day. Maybe it's somewhat like his two-year discipleship initiative in Ephesus, where he met every day for two years. Obviously, this is not every day for two years, but it's a lengthy period of time for a day, hours. I don't know how many hours, morning to evening. What is that? Is that six hours? Is that eight hours? Is that 10 hours? Is that 12 hours? I don't know, it's, but it's a long day. And after the, at the end of the day, 
Some did believe, some didn't believe, some were disagreeing among themselves. And you may recall that was what was happening in Ephesus in Acts 19 as the people in the synagogue where he was speaking began to get adversarial. They began to disagree and they began to argue and debate and he withdrew from them. So at this point, what he does, he doesn't withdraw from them. Instead, he pulls scripture out. He says the Holy Spirit was right in his inspired revelation through Isaiah when he said this, verse 26, go to this people saying, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they barely hear, and their eyes they have, they're closed. And they will see with their eyes, and they will hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now, this is not a very nice statement. He was telling, he's accusing them of being hard-hearted, of being closed-minded, and not hearing. You're not getting what I'm saying. Now, he's quoting Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 12. Now, this is not the first time these texts have been quoted. Jesus quoted them. Paul quoted them again in Romans 11, and John quoted them in John 12. So you have other occasions where these were used, and they're used, and you're saying, why would you say this? This does not seem to be helpful to try to get people to accept Christ. Well, I think you have to understand, Paul did not view that the human being in a fallen condition could accept Christ. Paul recognized the only way anybody comes to Christ is that they have to be born again. They have to be invaded by the Holy Spirit, just like he encountered the Holy Spirit on the road to Damascus, and he didn't choose Christ. That wasn't a free choice. He wasn't seeking Christ, and there was no preacher, no pulpit, nothing. Jesus showed up and invaded his life. When Jesus intercepts you, your heart changes. Your ears open up. Your mind opens up, and you can you can see, you can hear, you can perceive, and you can understand. But if he doesn't do that, there is no way you can receive Christ. So he was clear on that. He was just simply, I think, doing what Jesus did when the when uh, his followers asked him, "Now, why do you speak in parables?" He said, "So that so the reality is that people can see but not see, and hear but not hear, and and understand but not understand." And so that's that's the essence of this. So when he said that, that offended them, which is what you might expect. And so they decided to leave. So now we have the last, you know, the transition to the last two verses. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation has been sent to the ethnic groups, the ethnos, and they will listen. The only way they will listen is if the Holy Spirit illuminates it to them and regenerates them. So he's not saying they have the will to do that. They have they have the grace of God to do that. Now, verse 29 in some manuscripts is not included, but the ones that do include it, it says something like this. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed, having much dispute among themselves. So now I want to just focus in for a minute on the last two verses of the book. <clears throat> This is, I'm going to title this, The Kingdom of God Unfettered by Chains. Remember, Paul is a prisoner talking about the kingdom of God in prison. 
Now, you don't normally talk about an, another kingdom when you're in the kingdom of, of someone else. So he lived these two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, if you paid attention to what he's, what scripture says here, it does not say he was proclaiming about Jesus. It doesn't say he's proclaiming the gospel or the good news. He was proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now, I think by implication, you can say the proclamation was the good news of the kingdom of God. That's probably fair. But you need to recognize there is a distinction here. There's a proclaiming and a teaching. They're connected. And I think that's one of the keys. You've got to understand the connection point. Also, I want you to point out the word that's used proclaiming. There are two basic words. Uh, the common word is evangelizo. That's that's a word that just means someone is sharing something. Somebody is maybe standing on top of a rock and speaking out, but it's just anybody. And then there's the word caruso. The caruso is different because it implies someone that has the official authority to declare something. You can have a representative of the king or of the governor, of the mayor, of whatever jurisdiction you have. They're representing him and making this declaration. Well, this is the word that's used here. Paul is acting as an official emissary of the kingdom of God. He's making a proclamation. So it's like, pay attention. This is important. I'm proclaiming to you the kingdom. Jesus is Lord in Christ. He is the king. He's in charge. And I'm going to teach you about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, the word here, boldness and without hindrance, uh, the word and is not there. It's with all boldness, unhindered is the idea. So he's teaching about the Lord Jesus. And that's the word didache. We get the didaskone. And we get the word dedicate from that, which that was the early um, discipleship manual by the by the church in the first century was the dedicate. It was the teaching about Jesus in the context of proclaiming the kingdom of God. So that's the idea here. You know, it's it's so fascinating. I you know I don't know that I've ever heard anyone really expound on that, really try to unpack that. So I, you know, it's presumptuous of me to think that I've got great revelation about it, but I'll share with you what, what thoughts have come to me as I've meditated on this. In fact, I woke up this morning with thoughts about this that I want to share with you right now. You see, Paul did not obey what we call the Great Commission. We're very quick to appeal to Matthew 28, 18 through 20 and call it the Great Commission. And we see it as a commission to world missions and world evangelism. That mandate is not a mandate to missions. It's not a mandate to evangelism. It's a mandate to discipleship. And, and furthermore, we use the word going and we think that we have to go travel somewhere. Well, I guess, you know, if you got real literal about traveling, I guess I travel in my house. When I go upstairs to downstairs, I go. Or when I travel down the street to walk with my wife, I guess I go there. 
But as you can say, it's very different from how we normally think about it. So I'm going to suggest that Paul didn't go anywhere. Paul was in bondage. He was attached to a Roman soldier. Presumably that happened during the day. The soldier was there and at night, I don't know if the soldier stood guard or just left him there and locked him in the house or what he did, but um, he was under guard. He was under house arrest. He couldn't just come and go as he pleased. So he didn't go. Paul was confined. Paul was a prisoner of the Roman Empire, declaring a kingdom that was outside the Roman Empire. Now, if the Romans were really listening and paying attention to this, they may not have liked this too much. They may have wanted to shut him down, but they didn't. So we have to recognize that, well, who is it that will come to Paul? Because he didn't go anywhere. He stayed where he was, but yet people came to him. And we have to recognize that the message that Paul is declaring is a message that people don't want. You see, it's a message of truth, and we don't want truth. It's a message of light, and we don't want light. It's a message about Jesus, and we really don't want Jesus. So how is it you get people to come to you? Now, we know the seeker-friendly world, they, they figured out the way to do it is you have to get something in your message that appeals to the flesh of man. I don't think Paul was interested in feeding anybody's flesh. Paul was interested in declaring truth. So he was he was dependent upon the Holy Spirit to move in the hearts of people, to regenerate them, or at least begin to open their hearts, and he would those Holy Spirit would send those people to Paul. So Paul, as a prisoner, waited patiently. He received whoever would come because most people wouldn't come. And the only people who would come, he obviously knew, had to be moved to the Spirit. So he was there serving them when they came, and he gave them a proclamation, an official proclamation of the kingdom of God, saying, this is the kingdom of God. And undoubtedly, he was he was basing everything he said on Scripture, which would have been Old Testament Scripture, including teaching about the Lord Jesus, who he was, and the work that he did, and what that meant. So this is Paul in Rome. This is what he came to. This is what he did, and he blessed so many people. It's not does not fit our picture of how to fulfill the mandate of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And yet we know that there were men there, his spiritual sons, that came to visit him. He wrote letters back to their congregations like Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon's, all those letters were written while Paul's in Rome, and they were carried by his spiritual sons back to those communities. So he was discipling people from afar, as well as he would receive the people that were hungry for truth there locally in Rome. Fascinating picture of how the work of the Lord was done, very different from the way we think it ought to be done. Now, I want to just uh, talk about the kingdom of God in the book of Acts. Um, And eight times in the book, the word the kingdom of God is used. So when we think about that, how are we to understand that? Well, let's just take a quick look, remind you of, we've already studied these before, but we're going to remind you of what these these eight occurrences are. The first occurrence was Acts 1-3. In Acts 1-3, it says, Jesus presented himself alive to them, that is the apostles, 
after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking. This word speaking here is the present active participle. Present tense means continuous action. Active meanings, he is doing the action, and the participle makes it like a verbal noun. So he was speaking continuously about the kingdom of God. This was the topic. This was his agenda. This was what he was trying to communicate. Jesus was alive. He had the breath of life in him, and his his main focus, but and he knows he's going to be ascending soon, his main focus was not what we think it ought to be. We wouldn't be doing talking about the kingdom because we wouldn't know what to say, but he knew what to say, and that was his topic. Everything else, some way or another, that we know about Christianity that's true connects to the kingdom of God in some way. Then the next occasion was Acts 1.6. It says, so when they came together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this is his apostles asking him about that. They're asking about a physical kingdom. Jesus is making it clear. Uh, now, you don't understand what's going on. Um, I, nobody knows when that's going to happen. He's not denying it's going to happen, but he's saying there's something else happening. The kingdom of God is much bigger than this. And the kingdom of God is going on right now. What you're talking about is going to happen apparently sometime in the future. We don't know when. The Father knows. We don't need to concern ourselves with it. Concern yourself with the kingdom of God now. The next reference is in chapter 8, verse 12. Now, chapter 8 is the chapter where the local ecclesia in Jerusalem came under severe enough persecution that the, the Christians scattered. You know, the Christians had Acts 1-8 before Acts 2. Acts 1-8 says, to the apostles, you be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And it's so interesting that when Acts 8 comes, we've had the first martyr. And the first martyr was not an apostle. It was a marketplace leader who was called and had C4 to be a marketplace leader. And he had C4 to lead in fixing things that were out of order in the Christian community. And he had the grace to testify to the details of how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament scripture and starting in the middle of chapter six to the end of chapter seven, which is a lengthy section, he lays it all out beautifully. At the end, the Jews don't put up with it. They just stone him. He dies with much dignity and grace, but then the, the fear of the Lord comes upon everyone and everyone scattered except the apostles. Interesting. Acts 1.8 was given to the apostles about how they would go to the ends of the earth, but in this first persecution, they don't go. It's all the followers that go. And so they're going to all these different parts of Samaria and Judea. And in Acts 8.12, the text reads, but when they believed Philip, now Philip was one of the six food distributors in Acts chapter 6, that helped bring things in order. They brought order out of chaos. That's what you're always trying to do. When you bring the kingdom, you bring order out of chaos. You bring God's order. So they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of the Lord Jesus. And they were baptized, both men and women. 
So they, the proclamation was the good news of the kingdom of God by Philip, who was not an original apostle, but yet he was an agent to proclaim the kingdom of God. The next time the kingdom of God shows up is associated with Paul's first apostolic journey. And he has been to Lystra, and he was actually stoned in Lystra, left for dead, but he wasn't dead. He stood up, and he went on then to Derby. And so he, he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God to that city, and he made many disciples. We don't know how long he was there. We don't know exactly what that means he made many disciples and then they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. This is this is Paul and Barnabas and those of his traveling companions, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So he's using the present tense of salvation here to refer to the tribulations transforming us bringing us more and more complete alignment with God, and that we will enter the future tense aspect of the kingdom of God when we transition to the next existence. So he's telling us again, the kingdom of God has the three tenses of salvation associated with it. The past tense is regeneration, the present tense is sanctification, the future tense is glorification. Now the next occurrence of the kingdom is in Acts chapter 19. This is where Paul is in Ephesus. He had tried very hard to go to Ephesus in the second journey. He was able to very briefly stop in Ephesus at the conclusion of that. And then in the third apostolic journey, he does get to Ephesus and he spends three years there. And this is where he did his two-year discipleship initiative. What, what led to that was he went to the synagogue first. That seemed to be his custom, going to the synagogue and for three months, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, we probably are pretty clear that the the people there at the synagogue would have been thinking about the physical kingdom, just like the, the apostles were initially. They weren't thinking about a spiritual kingdom. They weren't thinking about the kingdom, you know, in the sense of salvation like we do today. But they were thinking about the restoration of their own sovereign rule over their country. and But he was reasoning from the Old Testament, showing that Jesus was Lord in Christ and all that that meant, and they opposed him. They resisted him. They started speaking badly about, him, about this, and that's what led him to stop. He stopped going there, and he started just going daily and meeting with his disciples and training them for two years. He met with them every day. And at the end of that time, verse 10 tells us, that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Evangelism happened through discipleship. That's a powerful picture right there. The next time that we have the kingdom of God in Acts is in Acts 20 when Paul is in Miletus meeting with the, the leaders, the elders of, of Ephesus while he's on his way to Jerusalem. On his way at, toward the end of the journey, he, he had left Ephesus and gone up into Macedonia and Achaia and now he's backtracking, going to Jerusalem. He doesn't want to go back into Ephesus, presumably because he had so many friends there, so many relationships, because he spent three years there. So he, he wants to hurry. He wants to get back to uh, to Ephesus by the feast. 
or excuse me, Jerusalem by the time of the feast. So, but he still wants to see the elders one last time. And so in this conversation with them, he says, now behold, I have that. I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming, and there we have Caruso, proclaiming as that official representative of the king, I'm proclaiming the kingdom, and you won't see my face again. So that's, again, you can see the kingdom is very prominent in his thought. He's not talking about salvation explicitly. He's not talking about righteousness and holiness and coming to Christ and discipleship and all those things that are part of it, but he's summarizing all of Christianity into the message of the kingdom. And finally, we have in chapter 28, we have now twice in this chapter, he talks about testifying of the kingdom. First in 28, verse 23, he's expounding to them and testifying to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them and then in 2831, he's saying he's proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. So the book begins with the focus on the kingdom. It concludes with the focus on the kingdom. And so we need to really begin to dig in and learn a whole lot more about what the kingdom of God is. What does that mean? What is the good news of the kingdom of God? And we have and stop making it so simplistic. Really realize it's a very robust revelation of truth that we're challenged to get to know. Well, let me just give you a, an application here. And I've called this application Kingdom Apologetics and Evangelism, for lack of a better title. Um, but I just want to encourage you to know we have a call to be kingdom apologists and we have a call to be evangelists. I mean, it was Evangelism is a proclaiming of truth, first with how we live, and secondly with what we say. Every worldview claims exclusivity. According to a Christian worldview, Christianity is the only correct worldview. And now keep in mind, this is not unique to Christianity because every worldview makes this claim. This does not mean that the world or other worldviews don't have some truth in them. They can have some truth, but only the Christian worldview properly understood is the most complete and comprehensive view of truth and reality that fallen man can attain. So we have an admonition in scripture in Colossians chapter two as part of encouraging us to live a Christian worldview. We're told to be rooted and grounded in Christ. This means we have to be rooted and grounded in a Christian worldview. This means we have to be taught and trained. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says. You have to be trained to live this way, trained to think this way. So this is learning to live according to the kingdom of God, according to a Christian worldview. So let me offer you three major things that we all have to embrace if we're going to do this. Now, these are not the only three things. These are just three I think major things that you've got to be clear on. One, you have to be committed to scripture as the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. This is the definer of of truth and reality. Without scripture, there is no transcendent ethical compass. None. We're all just relativists. We're all just making stuff up. We're all humanists. Scripture is the thing that makes Christianity unique. 
it is means we're basing what we believe and live uh, based on something external to ourselves, something that we believe has come from the transcendent God of the universe. That's number one, committed to the scripture as the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. The second thing is we have to be a lifelong student of scripture. It's not enough to go to weekly gatherings that we call church services. That's not enough. You can't possibly get enough. You need intense training. Think about this like an army. If an ar- you're recruited into the army, the first thing I'm going to do is give you intense boot camp training. And then once you're in the army, you never stop training. You continue. You're being trained. That's a great analogy. Now, we as Christians today, we don't think that way. We, we think if somebody makes a profession of faith, that's all they need to do, baptize them, and now they can go teach Sunday school. That's the mindset we have. That is not very profound. We have to understand the scripture is a very deep, profound revelation of truth. We need to grow and mature in it. We need to be trained in it. We need to be discipled in it. And we need to be under godly people. We need to be humble, submitted, and teachable under godly people so that we can grow up and mature in Christ. That's the second one. So we have to be a lifelong student of scripture. We have to be taught. And thirdly, as one grows and matures in Christ, as a Christian worldview, you have to be increasingly skillful and in recognizing the faults. When you know the real, the faults will jump out at you quickly. So the better you know the real, the faster you'll identify the faults. So that's very important that we get clear on that. Knowing the truth is the best way to detect error. This is the only way to live in fulfillment of creation mandate. We're here and we're called to fulfill the creation mandate first and foremost. That is the true Great Commission. The discipleship mandate, which is frequently misunderstood and mislabeled, is called the Great Commission and it's called, it's assumed to be a, a commission to world evangelism. It is not that. It's, it's a mandate, it's a command to disciple all ethnicities. So how does that connect to the creation mandate? It's very simple. The creation mandate is our mandate to rule. And if you don't get clear on that as the Great Commission, you're going to be confused about living as a Christian. Then you should recognize that without the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll never be a good ruler. You need to be a disciple of Jesus, a profound disciple of Jesus, to be able to obey the creation mandate well. So what Christ did is revealed to us in the Old Testament that we could never obey the creation mandate well. And then he came, did the work for us to make us acceptable with the Father and to empower us through the Holy Spirit, both to regenerate us and then indwell us, so that now for the first time in, in since the fall of man, mankind has the capacity, the power through Christ and the Holy Spirit to be able to obey the creation mandate at a whole new level. We have the power to rule well now, not perfectly, but so much better than you could ever be done in the past. So that's how the creation mandate connects with the discipleship mandate. Disciples of Jesus should rule well, and when you rule well, you will be light to the world through your lifestyle first, and secondly, through your words. Jesus made that clear when he talked about you are the light of the world. This is Matthew 5, 
14 through 16, in his first explanation of his good news of the kingdom of God, he's explaining what evangelism looks like. Evangelism is being light to the world. Well, how are we light to the world? We're light to the world through our good works, not through our good words. That doesn't mean we don't speak. We will speak. But we need to be first and more focused on the good works. The good works are the works that you do according to the will of God, the ways of God, the timing of God, and for the glory of God. You don't do a good work just because you think it's a good work. You only can do a good work that you're called to do. You can only do a good work that you should do. You only can do a a good work when you're empowered to do it. You've got to recognize how God works and start working with him. We are not here to do whatever we want to do, to live the life we want to live, to fulfill the American dream, to whatever do whatever it is that we concocted in our mind we think makes us significant and count. We're here to obey Christ, to do his will, his ways, and his timing, and for his glory. That's the only way you can do a good work. And when you do that good work, you will light up. Others will see it and recognize it as God sovereignly gives them grace to see it. And he will use that at his sovereign pleasure to draw people to himself. And along the way, you may be asked to explain something to someone. Or you may not be. You can be light and may be called to speak and be light and not called to speak. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you're light. And this is where the SLA message is so powerful. You know, I am not trying to say that SLA is the way to do this. I'm saying that the basic principles found in Scripture that are taught in SLA, those principles are what's powerful. People have to engage in learning how to die to self, remove the blocks, and align with the will of God. You've got to learn that and start doing that, or you will never be able to live the way God's called you to live. You will never abide in the vine. If you can't abide in the vine, you will not bear fruit. And the marker of a true Christian is a true Christian abides in the vine. And when they abide in the vine, they get pruned and bear more fruit. So this is the way forward with the kingdom of apologetics and evangelism is you've got to learn how to live out the creation mandate and how you do that as a disciple and how evangelism flows from discipleship. When you see all this, things change. Your life will change. You'll live a lifestyle of faith. You will trust the Lord and he will use you at his sovereign pleasure. And whatever happens won't matter to you because you will just be thankful about anything and everything that God has for you. It will be good. So may we have grace and favor to learn to live like this in Jesus name. Amen.